0: before covid there was even there was a big stigma for people disclosing feelings of loneliness because we live in a society that values independence and privacy so if you disclose that you feel alone then sometimes you are perceived as needy right and, and you don't want to come across as needy in a society that's independent
1: i'd like you to meet claudia Rosetto. She is a full-time chaplain with Baptist Housing and has been serving in Vancouver for over a year and a half. Claudia is from Bolivia, and talk about a surprising career path. Her background is originally in IT, where she worked for a Christian humanitarian organization called Food for the Hungry. Then came the career jump. She decided to make a huge change and studied theology at Regent College. She now has a Master's in Christian Studies, as well as a Doctor of Ministry through Carey University, with a focus on isolation and evangelism, and how followers of Jesus can be good news to those experiencing social isolation. Before joining Baptist Housing, Claudia worked for 12 years in Mission Fest Vancouver, where she worked to promote and provide community collaboration between missions organizations, pastors, churches, and missionaries through educational events. Today we're kicking off a series of interviews around the mental health challenges that we as chaplains to seniors are most frequently coming into contact with. I asked Claudia to talk with us about what has been the most common mental health challenges she has seen as she has served as a chaplain.
0: Um, Well, I wanna start acknowledging that I'm not a mental health professional and that um, most of my residents or our residents may not even be aware of any mental health diagnosis they have except the ones that have been diagnosed and they have some kind of engagement with medication. So um, I think that the most common one would be um, depression and um, and anxiety. And a lot of that um, is also connected to the journey they are in. Many of our residents, as you know, Aaron, come to residential care because a big loss was part of their lives. They lost something. They lost a uh, sense of independence, which could be part of uh, an important loved one passing away or losing an important relationship. And so they're grieving. And naturally, this grieving transitions are very draining and very demanding. So um, residents come Often, not all the time, but often, dealing or coping with grief. And dealing with grief um, is a very demanding task. So they don't have much energy to, to socialize, which, um, as we know now, uh, social isolation can worsen or create mental health challenges.
1: I, too, will share that I am not a mental health professional. But sadly, I have noticed the same things. Depression and anxiety being the most common challenges residents are coping with. Though I believe depression seems to be the most common. How about you? What would you say is the most common mental health challenge facing your residents? Up next, Claudia speaks a little with us about some of the signs she sees associated with these difficult circumstances.
0: I guess if we talk about signs that I see would be A lot of um, chosen isolation, and it might be partially chosen by them, but also unconsciously because they just don't have energy to socialize. Their their minds or bodies are, yeah, processing a process of uh, um, a situation of grief of some kind of grief. Maybe they lost their physical or cognitive abilities in some way, and they're losing. They're grieving that. So, yeah.
1: So you're you're saying sorry you were saying that one of the big symptoms is that people just kind of pull themselves out of the game so to speak and they're by
0: themselves
1: a lot and that's that's like a telltale sign to you that there's something not going well for that person right
0: that's right that's right and and eventually in time you realize that i mean there are some people who naturally before they moved to residential care maybe they were introverted people anyways and they did not interact very much with their community activities um, and that's why they live again with us when they move in with us and some relationship with them will make you realize whether they are content in their um, chosen solitude or maybe they're struggling and their mental yeah. health is languishing in that solitude, you know, in that loneliness, sure. yeah. And, and in some cases, another another resident, for example, they were also very, um, I don't know if self-absorbed, but. In that case, they were dealing with grief. So this resident had moved in because of the passing of a spouse. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was grief themso- itself is, can be very similar to depression, right? Like during the a grief process, you are also low energy, forgetful, anxious. And so, the, but, so it's easy to mistake grief by depression. Maybe the assumption for me is, they are grieving about something because of their age, because they are with us. So maybe my assumption is more, they are grieving something. And maybe I start um, learning more about that, with that assumption. If I see them in a low spirits, maybe there's something they're grieving. Um, And then that may lead to something that was not grief. Maybe they feel more comfortable to talk more about a mental health diagnosis or, yeah their own self um, understanding what's happening, then they tell me more.
1: That was such a helpful reminder for me. Just because we see a resident alone or isolated doesn't always mean that they're needing our support. We need to keep leaning into building our relationship with them in order to understand if that aloneness that we see is just a normal part of who they are or if in fact it is because they could use a friend or support. Relationship building is so important and such a big part of what we are called to do as chaplains, isn't it? And I need to admit that I totally wasn't expecting to be talking about grief when we were originally talking about depression, but it's totally related, isn't it? As Claudia points out, there are many similarities between someone who is grieving and someone who is dealing with depression and it's likely easy to get them mixed up. I appreciate the reminder once again that getting to know our resident will help us figure out the root cause of what they're going through. So one of the questions I have often struggled with and often still do at times is around how to weave faith in Jesus and the hope of the gospel into my interactions with those I serve. I have seen it done poorly and the often nasty results which seem to follow on so many occasions that it almost feels like I have been burned in that area and want to be extra cautious and careful in how I approach it. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. So I'm always curious to see how others go about sharing their faith and hope in Jesus in the relationships that are around them. With regards to our conversation today around serving residents dealing with mental health challenges like depression or grief, I asked Claudia if she could share what it might look like to bring faith into the conversation and also how not to do
0: it. For me lately, um, a lot of my interest in evangelism has now boiled down to offering prayer. I felt that that's the best way to bring the good news of Christ is by offering people to pray for them right away with them. Um, So... Uh, if i aim for at least a 10 minute interaction with somebody um depending on that day if they're having a better day uh, then i would offer can i can i pray for you Aaron?" right now and most people most people i would say 90 percent say okay either because they don't want to fight with you or maybe because they don't care or they don't think prayer is going to do anything or whatever but most of them say yes so that sense of bringing The person to christ in that very moment and trusting the spirit to do that to to do something right um that is my very common approach and um and then the next one would be if i know of a particular relationship of this resident with other resident that i feel in a better mental health or emotional place so then mention and say maybe visit this one resident right like uh, i notice that your friends um uh, you'd be great if you continue to just affirm what they're doing well to to bring extra people when i'm not there um yeah so through visitation occasional visitation and always always a prayer um if they are in the hospital so then through little things bringing a chocolate a little card with a verse you know um if they suffer from memory challenges, so then something on print is always helpful to look at, rather than just leaving and maybe they forget. Um,
1: Yeah. Okay, and and how about the opposite? Like what would be, I guess I'm, I'm asking for best practices, what about the opposite side of like, what is not a good way? To come into that sort of a relationship being a chaplain and having faith and hope in jesus and all that good stuff (laughs) are there ways that we should not do it
0: (laughs) yeah yeah Mm. i think one way to not do it is come with assumptions i think as people who see ourselves as followers of jesus we grew up um, the older we are the more permission we give ourselves to have assumptions Um, and we interact with people based on those assumptions Uh, so to come with assumption that the person is not doing well because they're not praying enough or because they don't have Jesus or or because they yeah they're doing something wrong
1: yeah
0: and therefore you know what's wrong with them and you will tell them how to be better. Um, so, coming with assumptions and advice—that would be the way not to do it. Yeah, and talk a lot is another <laughs> way. I, I think becoming more comfortable with silence um, would be a good way to sit beside somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So.
1: Was yeah. that hard for you? Any of those things? Yeah, many years ago. Me? Many
0: years ago, silence was very tense. It was a tense time for me. I grew up in a family that where silence was a sign of tension. Really. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: So whenever I perceived silence, for me that was tension. So I needed to fill up the silence, and um, through yeah, through some Christian spiritual formation, I've learned the benefits, and so I sit more comfortably with silent with silence now. Yeah. Um, yeah. In,
1: in the- and I know you weren't prepared for this question, but for someone who is just getting into doing this, who maybe maybe they're 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 used to being in that role of trying to fix things, which I think that chaplaincy and pastoral care kind of has that but well, we want to help other people. Yeah. But yeah. learning how to be quiet is not doesn't come naturally to most, I think. Yeah. We, we feel that like you say, that tension to try to step into that moment of need or that that quietness and try to fill it with our own voice. Yeah. Um, what do, Can you think of any, and I'm putting you on the spot, I totally know that's I That's
0: fine, that's fine, that's
1: fine. Can you think of anything that practically has helped you in that journey of, of stepping away from being uncomfortable with silence?
0: Yeah, I think there would be two things. Um, how do I perceive God? who do I perceive God to be and practicing silence. So two things. Um, I think um, my approach in evangelism is that we serve a God whose nature and action is to reach out. So God is reaching out this person that I'm going to see with or without me. God has been reaching out this person for a long time, for their whole life. So for me, any experience of good, that that person has had is a sign that God was reaching out to them. So when I come, my role is to acknowledge what God has been doing and saying to this person for, for this person's whole life. So I'm not called to be the Messiah of this person. Right? <laughs> so I don't you need know. to like switch their lives upside down in five minutes of conversation. <laughs> um, there's only one Messiah, Aaron.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and that's not me. <laughs> and that's not me. Thank God. So, um, so seeing how do I see God, the, the nature and the action of God? We we serve and we love a missionary God. He's constantly reaching out to people, right? Even through the most weird situations, God is reaching out to people. So when I come into the company of somebody, I acknowledge that Christ has already been reaching out to this person and. So what is Christ inviting me to say or to do or not to say anything, right? Maybe well, Jesus has already been talking to this person. and my, The only thing he's asking me is just sit down next to her. Just sit down because I've been talking to her. So she just needs somebody to sit down next to her. Can you do that for me? Right? And so silence to me is one way to acknowledge that we serve a missionary God who's reaching out the whole time, all yeah. the time. And our role is just to acknowledge that presence in that moment and see how may He might be calling us or not to say something.
1: <laughs> yeah. And there's well,
0: also this interesting tension, right? Um, to acknowledge that God is way ahead of us at all times, yeah. but also He chooses to partner with us. That's right. So, how to be a responsive partner to God without taking over the job. That's right. Right, That's the, That tension of partnership is always there for all we do.
1: It's so important. <laughs> I think that that is something that needs to be replayed over and over and over again. Yes. Is there anything else that you want to add to that answer about how not to bring your faith and, and-
0: Oh yeah, I think it was, yeah, the assumptions and the talking, doing a lot of the talking and having assumptions. I think it's better if we come with questions more than with answers, um, because we may be bringing answers to the questions the people may not even have. Um, so asking more questions I think would be having less, uh, ask, um, questioning and challenging our assumptions, naming the assumptions I'm coming with to this person. Um, yeah, so all the assumptions of how we might be in a better place to help this person, maybe we're not. And, yeah, so not acting on our assumptions and doing less talking. Yeah. And We do less talking by asking questions. <laughs> and if the person is not in the place to, to answer those questions because of a thousand reasons, they maybe just bring silence and non-demanding presence that is comfortable to sit yeah.
1: with
0: the person for as long as it takes.
1: Boy, there's a lot to think about in there. Serving residents who are dealing with mental health challenges and how we can do that well as representatives of Jesus is a big deal. Like I said in the intro to this segment, there seems to be so many ways, at least to me, to do this wrong. But I feel like Claudia shared some helpful advice about how to avoid those missteps. The first one, remembering that God is way ahead of you. He's already at work in the person you are about to visit, and he has been at work in their life for all of their lives. Our job, my job, is not to bring Jesus to our person. He's already there. But instead, our job is to practice listening carefully to see how God is wanting to involve us and what he is doing. I think sometimes those moments of invitation are obvious. Maybe a resident comes right out and asks you about faith or God. But other times, the invitation might come from asking good questions of our residents and listening carefully to their answers to help us discover some of what God has been up to. And that leads into the whole topic of assumptions. Ouch! Those can be such sneaky things, can't they? Especially around the topic of spiritual care. It's easy to assume that what a resident who is struggling is needing most is prayer, or a Bible passage to be read to them. But what if, as Claudia mentions, what they really want is someone to listen? Or what if they just need someone to sit quietly with them for a while, or offer them a hug? That was challenging for me. How about you? Finally, Claudia shares with us what she sees to be the connection between spirituality and mental health.
0: I think um, now there's more, there are more bridges between mental health and spirituality. I grew up in a Christian environment where if you were seen as a psychologist and you were a Christian, then maybe you were letting your faith down or you were not, um, committed enough to your spiritual disciplines. Sure. Um, now that I've come to Canada, where there's some more comfort with therapeutic talk, you know, whether now here you can see more Christian people as in a counselor, a psychologist, but there's still, still a bit of stigma to talk about um, issues of disclosing issues of loneliness or mental health challenges in the midst of followers of Jesus right like because it often invites the question of are you praying enough do you have a bible study group do you know that there's this group and so again assumptions that you're not committed enough or you haven't been trying enough to to hold on to the truths of the bible
1: um I would say that those are very deeply rooted things that's how I grew up that whole assumption of if you're struggling it's because you're not doing your your faith walk with Jesus right. It's it's all on your shoulders, you know? You're doing something wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. So now I think that there's a little bit more freedom. I think COVID has helped because, um, you know, in a weird way COVID has created permission for people to speak about their struggles with loneliness. Um, Before COVID, there was even... There was a big stigma for people disclosing feelings of loneliness because we live in a society that values independence and privacy. So if you disclose that you feel alone, then sometimes you are perceived as needy, mm-hmm. right? And, and you don't want to come across as needy in a society that's independent. That's right. Um, so the, there's a then the, I mean spirituality is post is placed now, especially in our Christian environment, as Christian chaplains spirituality can be such a bridge or a barrier to our mental health, right? It can be both. Um, uh, uh, Say that again, a bridge or a barrier. Um, I think spirituality, when it's a bridge, it's able to know when a medication or a psychology type of approach will, will be needed. And when it's time to, to bring to the person to Christ again, I remember this, um, I think it was an African theologian or something? He said, You Westerners have therapy, we have repentance. Mm-hmm. He said, So there is a moment in our lives when not enough therapy is going to heal us, that we need repentance and we just need to come to Christ in deep acknowledgement of, of where we failed and, yeah. <laughs> and receive his forgiveness, right? And just say that we failed. Um, so that that. I recognize in that moment when repentance is needed instead of therapy is where our spirituality can, can help if we are in tune to the spirit. But if we're more in tune to our understanding of what our theology is about, more than who Christ is himself, so then our spirituality can become a barrier that is not understanding of suffering or or just illness you know mental illness or mental health struggle so so it can be both it can be a barrier or a bridge um so
1: so just to, to speak on that part a little bit more because i think that's that's very interesting that how our i mean i think we, we tend to think of spirituality as being or our faith in jesus as being like the uh, uh the silver bullet sort of thing that all you need is him and everything else will be okay in your life eventually. But more than, more often than not, it's more like a microwave sort of experience that yeah, you just need to do this and everything is gonna turn out, you know. And we expect it to be this almost instantaneous thing. And uh, but your point about being it, it can be a barrier as well. Where uh, let me see if I if I heard you correctly, where you were saying that we can tend to um, did you were you saying that we can tend to focus more on the on the clinical sort of uh, side of of dealing with our mental health challenges and we kind of don't yeah there's that tension yeah, yeah
0: there's that tension between focusing too much on the clinical or the therapeutic side needed to help a mental health without acknowledging that there's also our spirituality offers this, pathway of reconciliation and repentance, coming back to God in a particular area of our life. And that tension is very sensitive, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And knowing when it's time for you to take responsibility of your desire to come back to Christ and being willing to, to do that journey little by little. And when it's time to just say, okay, to medication. I mean, medication is important and just stick to your psychiatrist and so those are very sensitive tensions and they require a great deal of inner awareness, listening to the spirit. I mean, community, a huge reliance on community. Those who love you, who know you, right? Who can stick with you. Yeah.
1: That's so important. That be, that being willing to, to kind of step into the other side of whatever that tension is. Like if you're more of leaning on your... Uh, on the spiritual side of things, if you're more of that persuasion, for lack of a better word, and realizing, yeah, I'm doing all the right spiritual things, but I'm still experiencing this this uh, brokenness inside. It's not, it's not being addressed completely. Mm-hmm. Maybe I also need to, to explore a little bit on the other side and get some medical help as well, but not to abandon one over the other. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's a really challenging, as yeah. you say, tension to keep in balance. Yeah.
0: yeah,
1: yeah. And I appreciate that. I think we all need to hear that there's not like a, there's not a silver bullet to this. It it does often require a, a balance between those two approaches, you know? Yeah, holistic I, I think at least in my upbringing, it was always, if there was an overbalance it would be on the spiritual side of things yes. like you don't need to go into the medical or the uh, the worldly perspective of of this yeah. all you need is is christ
0: yeah 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 i think when i i, I remember uh, i had a, a psychologist as a professor at regent and when he was telling, it was like an eye opener for me because psychology was bringing language to me that the bible didn't have And in order to deal with an issue, I felt that psychology was like the fork when you're tackling a chunk of meat. Psychology was like that fork that would hold you in place. You know, you have a fear of rejection or you are struggling with um, fear of intimacy, whatever, all this language, right, that psychology brings us. And then the fork, that was the fork that would hold you in place, would not let you go away. And then the knife was the the, the word of God that would say, yeah, that's... Psychology gives you some language to diagnose you. But then what is going to really cut it and get rid of whatever is needs to get rid of is the scripture, you know, word of God. And if you are able to use those two to deal with a chunk of something, (laughs) then, um, yeah, they both can.
1: That's that's a very useful uh, word picture.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was for me, too. Yeah. Mm Yeah.
1: Okay, um, so the last question that I have for you, how, how about yourself, how are you doing, at, or what do you do to balance those two things out in your own life about uh, yeah. taking care of your own mental health? Are there things that yeah. you do that, that help you?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, it comes to time management, how this, the, the, the weekly and the daily rhythms of my life, the weekly rhythm being Sabbath, um, take a 24-hour day of rest. And for me, that was initially very difficult because I'm very um, I have issues with always wanting to be productive. So yeah. taking that weekly rhythm of rest, where I know that I'm not running the world, not my world, and if I take a break, God can still run the world. Um, that's a great acknowledgement of my limitation. So that's a weekly rhythm that's connected to worship as well. It's not just take a break, you know, but it has to be a Sabbath that's connected to worship, which could be in community often, right? Collective worship. And then the daily rhythms. um, I remember not long ago when I was doing my spiritual care course, I thought I would not survive the stress because I felt alone (laughs) for many reasons. So I was just, not able to sleep well, and um, so I prayed to God. How, how can I handle this? Like, am I going to survive to teach this course? <laughs> <laughs> so, at that point, I, the Lord brought me to some concepts of these transfer strategies. Um, I remember it. Some health professional—I don't know if it was a nurse or a social worker—she told me about this daily transfer strategies she had, so to never go home straight from work. To either, she would cycle home, for example, to get rid of all, I think she was a nurse, actually. Um, she would cycle home, so, so do something before, in between you go home, or have some kind of strategy to transfer all the sadness and all this empathy fati- fatigue that people in health helping professions, i.e. us, can have, you know always listening empathetic all the time and they can you can experience fatigue. So one transfer strategy that I do daily is to go at noontime. I, I'm the noontime part came from the new monastic practices. The the in the new monastic practices the noontime prayer um is an important and a hard one apparently there's there's this noontime devil I think that some Monks would talk about that. That's the hardest prayer time to do, and so I'm um, aiming for a noontime daily um, prayer walk. Yeah. And um, so I, at noon, I just stop. So I have to stop, and so at noon, try to go for a for my prayer walk to connect with God and to transfer anything or doing that morning that has been difficult, whether it's been a, a difficult story I heard or something difficult I witnessed. Or attention that's in that in my workplace, um, just give it to God because otherwise I'll carry it home, yeah. and I'll carry it tonight, so I won't be able to sleep. Um, yeah, so that's it's a lot around how I manage my time. So these weekly and daily rhythms, and also limit my information intake. Um, so my husband and I are now, I use we used to be daily watchers of news.
1: Yeah.
0: We're not daily watchers of news so we're limiting our information intake uh, and of course the usual things limit your screen time and not be so much on attached to a screen um yep. yeah in your prayer life scripture and and access to creativity one of the rhythms i love the most in my work here is on fridays i write my paper chapel Uh, For that's an an activity for accessibility to our residents who either can't come to chapel or have memory issues with having a printed version of what I spoke on that week. Mm -hmm. That's where I feel I find the word that creativity moment when I I write um, and I meet scripture, and then that's another part. So having that access to creativity during my work schedule.
1: Okay. Well, Claudia, we're, we're already at this, the 60-minute mark, pretty much, and I don't want to intrude on more of your time, but I have just really appreciated hearing from you on this, and there's so many really great points that you made throughout this, and um, I, I really think that people will have a lot to take away from. I know I have. I'm, I'm going to be thinking a lot about some of the things that you've mentioned and I I just appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today.
0: Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for inviting me.